So how many of you moms got breakfast in bed? Wow. Well, keep your hands raised for a second. Why are you raising your hand, Wes? She got you breakfast in bed? Well, I'm sorry, baby. I am sorry. I feel very small right now. Well done, men. Man. <laughs> okay, I'll make it up some other way, sweetie. Goodness. Sorry. Um, we're in Mark 15. Mark chapter 15, verses 21 through 32. We have a lot of people missing today. I think they're probably with their moms in different places. I hope they're having a great time, enjoying that time together. And I hope you guys will have a great time with your family today. Mark 15, 21 through 32, page 852 if you're using one of those blue church Bibles. I was watching an episode, I titled this message, That Others May Live. How many of you are familiar with that, that phrase, that others may live? Anybody? Because I wasn't until recently. Henry's familiar with it. Okay. Few. I was watching an episode of I Shouldn't Be Alive on television with my daughter. It's this episode where people get into really difficult situations and somehow they get out of it and they shouldn't have. And in this episode, there was that incredible storm that we had in our history and this guy was stranded out in the ocean. And the men that were sent out to rescue him were called pararescue men. Pararescue men. I had not heard about them and I was not aware that this organization even existed They are United States Air Force Special Operations Command and Air Combat Command operatives tasked with recovery and medical treatment of personnel in humanitarian and combat environments. So basically, their primary mission and task is to go behind enemy lines and rescue soldiers that have gotten themselves into a bad situation. Maybe their aircraft has crashed or they're just stuck, or maybe they're lost, or they've been taken captive. These guys go into those situations to rescue them and offer medical attention and to withdraw them. To keep themselves busy and trained, they also do it for uh, in humanitarian situations, for civilians. So they're the ones that will go out into the middle of the ocean in these helicopters and rescue these guys that get stuck on their boats and didn't know what they were doing or just a storm caught them off guard or into earthquake situations and so on and so forth. They wear a maroon beret as a symbol of their elite status. This is an elite group of men. And this maroon beret, you know the color of maroon? Looks like blood. That's on purpose. It symbolizes the blood that has been shed by what they're referred to as PJs. That's what they call themselves, pararescue jumpers, because typically they're jumping out of aircraft into dangerous and hostile situations to save people. It also represents the blood that current PJs are willing to shed to save lives. It's a quote I got on some information from them off the Internet. Willing to shed to save lives. Here's their creed, beloved. This is their creed. It is my duty as a pararescue man to save life. And to aid the injured, I will be prepared at all times to perform my assigned duties quickly and efficiently, placing these duties before personal desires and comforts. These things I do that others may live. And that's where that statement comes from, that others may live. That's their their motto. That's what they live by. But this is the full creed. I was thinking this morning, this should be a mother's statement. This should be a mother's motto, right? 
she lives that others may live. In 1989, just as an example to show you what they do, when we had that great earthquake in San Francisco and and some of the uh, freeways and stuff collapsed, these guys were the only ones who were on scene and volunteered to climb underneath these collapsed pieces of concrete to scope out the situation and rescue anybody that was in there. I mean, they literally, that's just one example of what they do on a regular basis. They put themselves in harm's way for the sake of others, that others may live. Really a great group of individuals and just kind of makes you happy to be a human being in some sense to see that there's people willing to to lay it all on the line, uh, not to hurt others and not to destroy others, but to, to rescue others. So, I'm going to bring that all into our text today. I wanted to open with that and just get you thinking in that, in that light and in that regard and, and thinking about great sacrifice and, and these pararescue men. Our context before we read the text this morning, just to bring you up to speed, we've been making our way through the Gospel of Mark. And here we are in chapter 15, verses 21 through 32. So here's what's going on. Between 5 and 6 a.m. on Friday morning, Between 5 and 6 a.m. on Friday morning, Jesus was brought as a prisoner before Pilate. We talked about this last week. He's the Roman governor of Judea. He was brought, Jesus was brought to them by the religious leaders of Israel. If you remember, they had illegally arrested Jesus, tried him in their court, and condemned him as deserving of death only hours earlier in the middle of the night, sometime between 12 and 3 a.m. They wanted Jesus dead. But they needed the governor's permission, the Roman governor's permission, to carry out that death sentence. Pilate examined Jesus. And again, we looked at this in detail last week. And he found that he had done nothing that would make him worthy of Romans, Rome's death penalty. But guess what? The religious authorities, leaders, persuaded the large Jewish crowds that were present at this time because they were there for the annual Passover feast. So the place was crowded with Jewish people. They persuaded them to call for Jesus' crucifixion, to demand His crucifixion. And eventually, Pilate gave in to the crowd's repetitive demands and the pressure and tactics of the Jewish leaders. At this point in our story, Jesus has been mocked, beaten, and brutally scourged and whipped by the Roman execution squad with barbaric devices designed to rip into the skin and body of a prisoner's backside and remove the flesh. This brutal and bloody process often brought the prisoner right to the edge of death, and sometimes it just killed them. So what else does Jesus have to look forward to on this terrible Friday morning. Well, Mark 15:20, right before we get to our text, records these words simply, and they led him out to crucify him. Jesus' previous prophetic words, spoken to his disciples and recorded for us in Mark 10, verses 33 and 34, were in the process at this moment of being fulfilled right down to the detail. Let me remind you of them. Jesus said to his disciples, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. 
and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priest and the scribes, the religious leaders. And they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, the Romans. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Jesus is now being led away by the Roman soldiers, this is the context, to be killed, crucified, tortured on a Roman cross. And that brings us right up to verse 21 of Mark 15. So look into your Bibles with me and follow along as I read from God's Word to verse 32, starting in verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. That would be 9 a.m., beloved. And the inscription on the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. This morning what we want to do is consider two cruel events. This is in your outline. It's out of your bulletin. Two cruel events that Jesus Christ endured in rescuing us so that we might be challenged to accept suffering, actual or potential. That means it's really happening or there's a real possibility it could happen. That we would accept those things for the sake of others' souls. That's where we're going this morning. The first cruel event that Jesus Christ endured in order to rescue His people was the horrific cross. The horrific cross. Beloved, today, the cross is worn as jewelry around people's necks, right? Many people, probably some of you have, I saw a beautiful cross on Stephanie's neck over here. Many of us wear crosses around our neck. I always usually, I don't always do this, but I often ask, is that decoration or is it proclamation? Because for many people, it's just a decoration. But I would hope that for us here, it would be proclamation. We're proclaiming something by wearing that cross. But the cross is displayed in many ways in our culture, right? In paintings and in pictures. And we have one behind us, people wearing it around their necks as jewelry. But if you were able to transport someone from the first century during Jesus' time and bring them into the 21st century, and they got a chance to see all of the crosses that are on display their initial reaction would be horror. They would think that we were 
lunatic, sadistic barbarians. That's what they would think of you, Stephanie. They wouldn't say nice cross. They would run from you. They would run from you. The cross was the instrument used in the agonizing execution process called crucifixion. Crucifixion. This method of execution used by the Rome, used by Rome and the Roman government during the time of Jesus was considered one of the cruelest and most painful ways that someone could be punished. It was utilized by the government to act as a very strong deterrent to committing great crimes or to rebelling against the government, committing treason. And it was a strong deterrent. The crucifixion process from start to finish was meant to utterly humiliate, disgrace, and shame the prisoner and cause them an enormous amount of prolonged suffering and misery before their bodies finally gave way to death. One popular Roman philosopher that lived in the century before Jesus was born, so one first century BC, is quoted as describing crucifixion. So he lived during this era. He saw it played out. Here's what he said. It is a most cruel and disgusting punishment. Saying further, the very mention of the cross should be far removed not only from a Roman citizen's body, but from his mind, his eyes, his ears. Crucifixion. Back to the text. Look back at chapter 15, verse 21. It says, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. The they, beloved, are the Roman execution squad who are taking Jesus away to be crucified. So here's what they did. The prisoner would be forced to carry the transverse beam through the city streets for all to see until he arrived to the place where he would be crucified, which in this case was outside the city but near the city walls, very close to the city walls. This was really just another way to humiliate the prisoner. The transverse beam is the one that goes across, the cross beam. He had to carry it or drag it to his death. He didn't carry the entire cross, but as I said, just the beam. That beam could weigh up to 100 pounds. Now that is heavy enough, beloved, to be difficult for a healthy man, someone in good physical shape, to be dragging through the streets for crucifixion. But remember this, that Jesus, as we've looked at the text and talked about this over the weeks, had been scourged. That means he had been brutally beaten and whipped. Brutally beaten and whipped. And no doubt, he has been awake for the last 24 hours straight. The conclusion we can draw from verse 21 in chapter 15 is that at some point, Jesus was simply unable to carry the transverse beam, to carry his cross, or he was simply not carrying it fast enough for the Roman soldiers. So, 
they force a random man. They're now at the city gates. He's coming in from the country into the city. They force this man, Simon of Cyrene, to carry that crossbeam to its final destination. Now apparently, the people Mark was writing to, this is just a side note, who are Roman Christians, and we've talked about this before, knew Simon's sons. They must have known because otherwise Mark wouldn't have mentioned them. Alexander and Rufus. And we're not sure, but Rufus, that name is mentioned in Romans 16.13, so it's possible that they were actually Christians in the Roman church. And so Mark is just drawing attention to that fact. You know, Rufus and Alexander, it was their dad who was forced to carry Jesus' cross to his crucifixion. But the whole point of that, me showing that, is this is just another way for them to humiliate the prisoner. To humiliate the prisoner. And then in Mark 15.22, look back at the text. It says, And they brought him to the place called Golgotha. Golgotha. Which means place of a skull. Golgotha, beloved, comes from a transliteration of the Aramaic word for skull. All that means is is they, they took the original word and then they tried to put it into another language using very similar uh, alphabet. So it comes almost directly over. It's almost spelled very closely the same. Golgotha. Maybe you have heard, though, that the place of Jesus' crucifixion is referred to as Calvary. Right? Maybe some of you have heard that. We always talk about Jesus died on Calvary. Well, that English term, Calvary, comes to us from the Latin word that is used to translate Golgotha in the Latin Vulgate. The Latin Vulgate was a Latin translation of the Bible made in the 4th century and that the church used for a very long period of time. And the Latin word, I'm going to show it to you because I'm not going to try to pronounce it, was that and the second thing, locus or something like that, because I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. Locus is place. The first word is skull. So this is place of the skull. So if you look at the Latin Vulgate, the Latin translation of the Bible, that's what you'll see there for Golgotha. That's where we got the word Calvary in our English language. So, by the way, this place, it's widely assumed that this place where Jesus was going to be murdered looked in some way or had some resemblance to a skull. And that's why they called it that, the place of the skull, Golgotha, Calvary. It says in verse 23 of chapter 15, look back at the text, they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. What's this all about? Well, this is a drink concoction. Wine mixed with plant sap. That's myrrh. Plant sap. And it created a narcotic, a painkiller. Vicodin. Morphine, okay? In the vernacular. Rabbinic writings inform us that Jerusalem women would prepare this drink to help decrease the pain for condemned criminals. And they did this in keeping with Proverbs 31, 6-7 that talks about giving strong drink to him who is perishing that he might forget his 
problems. So they did it in light of that passage, Proverbs 31, 6-7. It is unlikely, though, that the soldiers would have been interested in extending any mercy to the prisoner. So the women may have prepared the drink and, and the women may have given this drink to the soldiers to give to Jesus. But why would they be interested in providing Him with a pain-free death? I don't think they were. The whole process of crucifixion was meant to inflict pain, suffering to the greatest degree. But, they may have allowed this drink to help sedate or calm the individual down a little bit before they nailed him to the cross. It just made their job a little bit easier. But Jesus refused to drink it. He refused to drink it, beloved. He refused to take the narcotic. He refused to take the painkiller. He chose instead to face and experience the suffering and His death with His senses fully intact. Fully aware. One writer says, it meant that in His self-giving, there was no self-sparing. Look back at the text with me. Mark 15, 24. And they crucified Him and divided His garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Now Mark, without any specific details, just kind of mentions, matter of fact, and they crucified Him. We're going to come back to that in a moment. But notice that Jesus' clothing is then divided up among the soldiers who are carrying out His execution. One writer says Roman legal text confirms that it was the accepted right of the executioner's squad to claim the minor possessions of an executed man. So whatever he had on him, his watch, right, stuff, that's typically what his iPhone, whatever he had left, in this case, clothing. Which, by the way, was very valuable because clothing was a, a very expensive commodity. It, was, it, was, it wasn't just... You couldn't just go to the store and get clothing. So the clothing was very valuable. In this case, that's what Jesus has left. While He is suffering and dying on the cross, they are busy dividing up His last remaining possessions. That's the picture, beloved. There they are. John's Gospel adds this, that this act by the soldiers was actually, and they didn't know it was actually another fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy that spoke about the death of our Savior in Psalm 22, verse 18. I'm going to read the passage in John, but that's the Old Testament Scripture that's being referred to. Psalm 22:18, John 19, 23-24 says, When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took His garments and they divided them into four parts. One part for each soldier. Also, His tunic. But the tunic, or the undergarment, was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us tear it, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the Scripture which says, they divided My garments among them, and for My clothing they cast lots. But if they have Jesus' clothes, then what was Jesus wearing? Ancient sources, beloved, tell us it was customary to crucify prisoners completely nude. 
There is no overwhelming reason to think that Jesus was an exception to this rule. I know in all the pictures that we see, he is typically wearing some sort of loincloth to cover his private area. And it has been suggested that possibly out of respect for Jewish morals and sensitivities, that the Romans may have allowed Jesus, a Jew, to be partially covered with a loincloth of some sorts, but that probably was not the case. And Scripture appears to indicate he had nothing on. One writer says this, that Jesus died naked was part of the shame which he bore for our sins. Let me add that the Romans did not crucify their victims in private. Right? When we, when we execute people, typically in this country under our rule in certain states, it's done in a somewhat sort of private way. That's not the case with the crucifixion. They weren't looking to limit the prisoner's exposure, but actually to to make it known to the public. They wanted it to be on display where all could view the despicable and humiliating process. In this case, it was put on display just outside the city walls. They wanted other people to see what was going on and to dread this act, and to fear the government. Now back to Mark's simple statement. And they crucified Him. That's all He says. Well, beloved, He's writing to Roman Christians. He doesn't have to tell them what crucifixion is all about. They know it well. But I want to read to you a Really, just part of a long quote. It's fairly long, but I'm just reading to you part of it that might help us this morning understand better the horrific details of what Jesus Christ endured to rescue His people. Just, I'll read it here. It'll show up on the screen, I'm sure. Simon is ordered, Simon of Cyrene, is ordered to place the beam on the ground And Jesus is quickly thrown backwards with his shoulders against the wood. The Roman soldier feels for the depression at the front of the wrist. He drives a heavy square, wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly he moves to the other side and repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow some bending and movement. The beam is then lifted in place at the top of the vertical beam. The left foot is placed pressed backward against the right foot, and with both feet extended, toes down, a nail is driven through the arch of each, leaving the knees moderately flexed. The victim is now crucified. As he slowly sags down with more weight on the nails in the wrist, excruciating, fiery pain shoots along the fingers and up the arms to explode in the brain. The nails in the wrist are putting pressure on the median nerves. As he pushes himself upward to avoid this stretching torment, he places his full weight on the nail through his feet. Again, there is the searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves between the metatarsal bones 
of the feet. At this point, another phenomenon occurs. As the arms fatigue, great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but cannot be exhaled. Jesus fights to raise himself in order to get even one small breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream, and the cramps partially subside. Spasmatically, he is able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in the life-giving oxygen. Hours of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. And they crucified him. Beloved, he endured the horrors of the cross. He endured those horrors that others may live. And if all of this wasn't bad enough, we come to the second cruel event that Jesus endured in rescuing us. So you have the horrific cross... And now we have the hostile comments. The hostile comments. Look at Mark chapter 15. Look back at the text with me, verse 29 through 30. As if that wasn't enough. And those who passed by derided Him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. Listen, beloved, Jesus is dying on a cross in incredible agony. Bruised and badly bleeding, suffering, naked, completely vulnerable. That's what's going on. So you might think that people would back off at this point, right? Maybe have a little bit of compassion, a little pity. But instead, they pour salt into his wounds, so to speak, through their mocking and insulting words. Jesus had been accused at his trial before the Sanhedrin that we talked about a few weeks ago that he supposedly claimed that he would destroy the Jewish temple. And they accused him of that because destruction of a religious building would have been a serious charge. And that Jesus supposedly said he was going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well, Jesus had said something similar to that three years prior in his ministry. But he did not say that he was going to personally destroy the temple, the physical building. And he wasn't talking about that building anyway. 
I'll show you the text. It's in John 2, 19-22. Jesus answered them, the Jewish religious leaders that were fighting with Him. He says, because they wanted a sign. Show us a sign, Jesus, that proves you have authority to do what you do. He says, okay, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? Are you out of your mind? But he was speaking about the temple of his body, John tells us, inspired by the Spirit. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. He wasn't talking about the temple the temple in Jerusalem. He was talking about his body. They would destroy it, and he would raise it up in three days. Anyway, the people coming by to deride chapter 15, verse 29, or to ridicule Jesus, to ridicule Jesus, one translation says, hurling abuse. That's a good translation. Throwing abuse at Jesus while He hung helpless on the cross. We're just really repeating the false accusations that they had heard and now they were using those to mock Jesus. So you you say you can do something as incredible as destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Oh yeah? then why don't you do something way easier, Jesus, like come down off that cross? That's what they're doing. Why don't you do that, Jesus? Huh? One writer says this. I found this worth contemplating. It says the jest, this attack they made, was the harder to endure since it appealed to a consciousness of power held back only by the self-restraint of a sacrificed will. See, he could come down from that cross, beloved. He could. But he didn't. Back to the text, Mark 15, looking at verse 31. Not only the people who are passing by are hurling abuse at Jesus, but here come the chief priests and the scribes, the religious leaders. It says in verse 31, So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked Him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save Himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. So here we have the religious leaders mocking Jesus. These are the ones, beloved, that should have led the people towards Jesus. They should have gotten behind Jesus, encouraged the Jews to follow Jesus, but instead they persuaded the Jews to Call for His crucifixion. And they have gotten their way. And it's interesting that in their statement here that they make to mock Jesus, they acknowledge His power to help others, to save others. And they're referring to the miracles this man wrought on earth, what he, what he did in healing people, even 
even an undeniable supernatural healing like raising Lazarus from the dead. They were unable to deny these things. And now they're, they're even making reference to His saving power in that way. But instead of that drawing them to Him, they actually use that as a way to mock Him. How messed up are they? So you saved others. <laughs> but look, you cannot save yourself. You're going to die. The incredible irony is his apparent inability to save himself is not due to some powerlessness on his part, but due to his willingness to hang there because he is actually saving others by dying in their place so that they can live eternally with him. Jesus will not come down from the cross. He will not turn back from this suffering, but he will endure in order that others may live. One writer says, had he been a self-savior, he could never have been the world's savior. I'll pop this one up on the screen, another one I thought that was worth meditating on. Regarding this idea that he saved others, but he can't save himself, that taunt assumes that salvation of self is the greatest good. The surest vindication of a would-be Messiah is therefore the ability to save himself. That's the suggestion. I mean, if you're really the Messiah, then you would be, you would be able to save yourself, and not only would you be able to, you would! Jesus, however, was not taken, has not taken upon himself the mission of self-help and self-fulfillment. He will be a ransom for others. The struggle in Gethsemane was about affirming and fulfilling that calling. If you were here, what this is, you remember as he struggled in that garden in the middle of the night as he knew what he was facing, what he would undergo, what great suffering he would endure for the sake of sinners. It goes on to say, the mockery at the cross fails to penetrate the vast and awful mystery that Jesus is a ransom for others as he referred to that in Mark 10.45. I did not come to serve, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. Finally, in verse 32, it says, Let the Christ, the King of Israel, or actually we just looked at that, but let me just pick up this second phrase. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Okay. Beloved, this was not a serious request for proof that would all of a sudden make them believe. This is still part of the mockery. Jesus had already given them plenty of evidence for them to believe. More than enough. And even with the greatest evidence ever, His resurrection from the dead, we read on that most of them still refused to believe. It wasn't about evidence. Their problem was they rebelliously refused to believe and now they were taking pleasure in their seeming 
victory over Jesus by mocking him. And finally, in our text, Mark 15:32, at the end there, it says, those who were crucified with him also reviled him. We have the people passing by. We have the chief priest and the scribes. Now the man on his right and the man on his left that are being crucified with him and enduring the same agony to some degree decide they're going to insult him too. These men were guilty of real crimes. Okay? Guilty of real crimes. And somehow, in the midst of all this, they find the strength. Hard enough just enduring the suffering of the cross, but they're going to muster up the strength to mock Jesus, who was innocent and had done nothing to deserve crucifixion or these hostile comments. But you know what? Jesus endured. He endured, beloved. He put up with it all. He patiently suffered in silence. He did not threaten, but lovingly hung and died. Beloved, He had the power to stop this. At any time, at any moment, He could have put an end to this. He had the power to shut their mouths. He could have leveled his mockers with one word. But he didn't. I lost my place. He had the power to come down from the cross as they suggested. He had that power. But He didn't. Why? Why didn't He? Simply, beloved, that others may live. That others may live. I can even see Jesus, in a sense, saying, these things I do. These things I do. That you may live. Now here's a little application for us, beloved. According to Romans 8.29, you can look it up later, God saved us. This is why He saved us, okay? That we might become like Christ. Did you know that? That's what God has planned for us as His people. He wants us to become like Christ gradually changed into His likeness, looking more and more like Him through our reliance upon and ongoing cooperation with the Holy Spirit that He has given us and dwells inside of us as Christians. Those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and call Him Lord. Well, beloved, Jesus was the ultimate Pararescue man. He was the ultimate pararescue man. He was willing to endure suffering for the sake of others, for their eternal salvation, for their spiritual well-being, to rescue them 
from the wrath of God and the fires of hell regardless of the great personal cost to Him. What about us? What about us? How should we become more like Christ in this way? How? Well, we personally cannot save anyone's soul. Amen? I can't. It wouldn't matter if I died for you. I can't save your soul. I can't make up for your sin. But we can and should inform or tell others about the One who can. Don't you think? Don't you think that's a way that we can be conformed to the image of Christ in this way? In that sense, beloved, we are seeking to rescue others by bringing them to the Savior, the great soul rescuer. But here is the problem most of us who are true Christians know from personal experience to one degree or another. And it's the truth that we find in Jesus' words made to His disciples in John chapter 15, 18-19 on the eve of His crucifixion. He said, If the world hates you, know that it has hated Me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Wow, that is so encouraging. No, not encouraging, but true. Generally speaking, beloved, I think it is safe to say that people don't like to suffer at all. Am I correct? I mean, if you do like to suffer, there's probably a little, some wiring issues or something. We don't want to suffer. But when we publicly identify with Jesus, we run the very real risk of having to experience suffering to one degree or another, whether that be through rejection or mockery or insults or hatred or contempt or disapproval or mistreatment or persecution. Or even, as has happened often in history, death. And beloved, I don't know about you, but I think it's clear to me that our world and our nation is becoming more and more hostile to God. Hostile to His Word. Hostile to His Son. Hostile to the Savior. They either reject Christianity flat out, or as is happening often right before our eyes, they are redefining Christianity to fit their lifestyles or to agree with their opinions. So that when Christianity is presented, the real deal is presented, they have no tolerance for it. Even though they claim to be the proponents of tolerance. 
But regardless of all that, beloved, as followers of Christ, we, we must be willing to accept suffering. We looked at it in Peter this morning. Actual or potential. As we seek to reach the world with the message of Jesus Christ. Why? Because we like suffering? No. That they might be rescued from a life of sin and destruction and ultimately saved from the wrath to come. That's why, beloved, that others may live. You think any of these pararescue men who do what they do on a regular basis to save other people physically get a high off the pain that comes to them frequently when they enter into that sacrifice? You think they enjoy that? You think they look forward to that? No way. But they do it anyway. They do it anyway. That others may live. In the process of standing for Christ, telling others for Christ, proclaiming Christ, living out our Christianity in a hostile world, we will face enemies. And we will find ourselves in hostile environments, just like the pararescue men. And when we take a stand for Christ, we will likely suffer. That's what the Bible says. But we must start and never stop speaking about Jesus. We must start and never stop speaking about Jesus, beloved, so that others may live. May God help us to live without regard to self, because that's the issue. May He help us live without regard to self. Because that's hard, beloved. I'm big on self. I love myself. And Christ calls us to die to self. Live for Him. Live for others. So we must reach out to our friends, beloved, our family. You'll be with some of them today. Many of them lost. They need to be rescued. We must reach out to our friends, our family, our neighbors, our co-workers with the message of Jesus Christ, regardless of what it may cost us. That's what it means to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, beloved. May we be God's pararescue men and women. And may our motto be, I rewrote it for us. It is my duty as a Christian to save souls by leading them to Jesus Christ. I will be prepared at all times to perform my assigned duties with wisdom, patience, and love. Placing these duties before personal desires and comforts. These things I do that others may truly live. Let's pray. Father God, heavy, heavy stuff this morning. Heavy topic, heavy issue. Maybe people were coming to hear a nice, pleasant Mother's Day message. 
And they got this. Father, I pray You would use Your Word to conform us and to change us and to transform us into the the people we need to be. The people we must be. Willing to lay down our lives. Willing to suffer. Willing to take on suffering. Willing to die to self as we stand and proclaim our Savior in a world that is hostile to Him, that hate Him, who mock Him. But Father, let that not keep us or prevent us from doing it anyway. May we entrust ourselves to our Father who judges justly. May we rely upon the strength of the Holy Spirit to do this. To bear under suffering, to endure, and to never shut our mouths, but to open them wide and proclaim the truth that we know will set people free, will rescue them, not only from a ruined life in this world, but an eternal damnation in the next. Father, we have the truth that will set them free. May we be bold. May we enter into, on purpose, hostile environments behind enemy lines to rescue some, to pull them out, to lead them to Jesus Christ and His great salvation. Father, I pray the moms here would really enjoy this day as they relish that great salvation that they have. When they think about what their Savior did for them, what He did for us to rescue us, my joy filled their hearts and overwhelmed them in gratitude and and happiness on this day. And Father, I know there are other mothers who have yet to call upon Christ as Savior, and I pray for them this morning. Father, might You be merciful and gracious, and might You extend Yourself in a powerful and sovereign way through Your people that they would bring this message of hope to them today, that they might be saved. We pray all these things in Your name, in Jesus' name. Amen.